Welcome to Streams of Progress, where we bring you weekly conversations with many of the UAE's prominent leaders and thinkers. Each of our guests are actively contributing to the vitality of the UAE community and economy. Our goal on the podcast is to inspire you to drive progress in your professional and personal life. Hey everyone, this is Merad, and this week on Streams of Progress, I sat down with Dr. Corey Block, CEO of Paragon Consulting. In this episode, Dr. Corey shared some great stories about his experiences in Estonia and Yemen prior to making Dubai his home. As a strategic consultant to multinationals, governments and startups alike, he shared his insights into many thought-provoking concepts such as the work-life blend and how business is personal. I hope you enjoyed this discussion, so let's dive right in. So we're sitting down with Dr. Corey. And if you could just do that intro, you just... Oh, the, the funny the full, professional, the full, the full professional yeah, one? Yeah. Okay, so I'm a postgraduate professor of strategic management at Monarch School of Business in Switzerland, and I'm the CEO of Paragon Consulting. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but nobody calls me that. No? No, just, just Corey or Doc. Okay. Yeah. I'll go with Corey. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, okay. Thanks. So before we get into what you're currently doing, yeah. let's talk a bit about your background. Sure. I started out in, well, I started in Vancouver in Canada. I was born and raised there. Uh, by the time I was 21, I was the inventory manager for the largest window production company in Canada. I controlled uh, uh, inventory for five production facilities. And it was really a lot of fun. It was crazy. But I was ready for something new. I wanted some kind of adventure. And my dad encouraged me to, you know, if, if you want to make a mess, you should do it while you're young enough to clean it up. So uh, I talked to my wife. We sold everything we had. We moved to Estonia. Now, Estonia at the time, I was in 1998, by the way. This is, I'm very old, mind you. So in 98, uh, Estonia was very post-communist. It was a bit rustic. It was before it became the innovative hub of the everything. Is that pre-Skype? Oh, yeah. Yeah, but I was there during Skype. I knew where the office was. Before anybody in the world knew where the office of Skype was, I knew where it was. I knew those the guys. The core knew where. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had a media company um, called Ear Candy. And I think we might have been one of the first to do live uh, video streaming online because we had access to the T1 and we had access to Skype technology before, well before it was sold out. Okay. Yeah, it was really fun. All right. So what's your education background then? Oh, I have, um, I have two master's and two doctorate degrees. Don't be impressed. It's a hobby. I don't watch football. I don't collect classic cars. That's what I do for fun. I read. I write academic journal articles. So I have a master's in, le- in leadership, a master's in business, a doctorate in business administration, and a PhD in Arab and Islamic studies. Arab and Islamic studies? Yeah. yeah I always get that look. Don't okay. worry. <laughs> so I, after Estonia, I'd been there for uh, eight years. We um, uh, sold the companies and moved to Yemen. And we were in Yemen for five years. Yemen was really a lot of fun. But one of the things that I was entirely ignorant about was the history of East-West relations and specifically about Islam, which is a very, is a massive part of business in this area of the world, is to understand and appreciate the sacred things of uh, of our Muslim business counterparts. And as a Christian living in Taiz in Yemen, it just felt to me like I had no idea what I was talking about. And yet that's what most of my friends wanted to talk about. So we would get together every Thursday and Friday, sit around, drink tea uh, for hours and hours, and we would talk about politics, economics, and religion. And I just thought, oh man, I just I need to fix my ignorance. So I repaired my ignorance by doing a PhD in Islamic studies through the University of Exeter, which uh, the institute there, uh, by the way, is, is founded by Sheikh al-Qasimi from Sharqa. 
So yeah, it was really, it was a fantastic study. Uh, I had a lot of fun and I studied the interpretation of the Quran during uh, the first three centuries of Islam, uh, specifically in the Byzantine Islamic Wars. So I have a great handle on history now, uh, on the meaning and understanding of the Quran for business. I think those things have been really helpful to me. And then, of course, I did my DBA. So as a, as a professional uh, doctorate, I have a professional doctorate in business, not a theoretical doctorate, not just a theoretical doctorate in hi- Islamic history. <laughs> And let's just rewind a second. Sure. What, what even took you to Yemen? Again, sense of adventure. I had met somebody in a... Um, well, actually, what happened was uh, it was 9-11. Okay. So in the post-9-11 world, living in Eastern Europe, I just felt, oh, goodness, I, I could probably be a part of, you know, some solution to this. You know, it just felt like I could contribute to the dialogue somehow. And just by living somewhere else and you know taking because I had a great sense of adventure so I talked to my wife about it I said said, hey listen what do you think about moving to the Middle East she's like yeah I'm game I'm like the whole you know uh, black dress and scarf and everything she's like yeah that'll be fun let's do it so I was like that's awesome so again we had this pretty strong sense of adventure so we packed up uh, with our kids and moved to Yemen originally I wanted to go to Amman or Beirut and then I met a guy at a conference in London. He was working for the Ministry of Electricity in Yemen. And he said, you really have to come. It's hilarious. And I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> hilarious. He goes, look, we don't have any running water and we don't have electricity, but it doesn't matter because uh, everybody's so happy and so welcoming and you'll just, you're going to have the time of your life. And I thought, oh, okay. And he said, so listen, do you want to learn Arabic in a place where everybody speaks English or do you want to learn Arabic in a place where nobody speaks English? And I was like... Okay, that makes more sense. So I just decided to unplug uh, from, uh, from my life for a couple of years, learn Arabic. But then by the time I was finished the two years of Arabic studies, I was already deeply involved with uh, a couple of great companies. I worked in oil and gas. I worked in power and water. Uh, and I worked in FMCG while I was in, in Yemen. All leadership training, restructuring, and feasibility. And then what brought you to Dubai from there? The war, actually. Yeah, so... During the first year of the war, actually, we stayed. Uh, yeah, because, well, no, neither of the two parties in the war wanted to hurt the Western expats. And there was like 10 white guys in the whole city, let's be honest. And the other nine guys were like doctors without borders. So uh, nobody wanted to hurt us. We were guests of both sides of the war. So one of my friends asked me on, on a Friday night, he goes, why don't you leave with all of the other Westerners from Sana'a? Like all the other Westerners are running away. I said, no, because I understand Yemen. And he said, well, what do, you, what do you mean by that? I said, I'm the, I'm the guest in a house where two brothers are fighting, but I'm the guest of both brothers. And they all, all these guys, there was like 15 of them, they're like, yeah, that's, you got it. That is it. Good job. That's, that's true. And it's true, actually. I, um, I'm still the, the chairman of the International Training and Development Center that operates out of ties. We do uh, charity work there. We, do, um, uh, we feed the poor and, and educate those because a, a lot of kids don't have school in now. So it's my pro bono work is to chair the, the ITDC. Uh, so we still have a, uh, I still have like my, my presence there. But at the time, our property was being uh, taken over by the, by the government. The military had moved in. And so my general manager is a wonderful guy. Is, uh, his name is Waldy. 
says, he calls me and he says, look, the property has been taken over by the government. What do I do? And I said, just grab the laptops and all the stuff out of the safe, grab the paperwork and then make your way up here. So he's like, okay, great. So he and, and one of our other employees grabbed everything, threw it in the back of the truck. And by the time he had got everything, you know, out of the offices, the fighting had started, right? They, the, uh, the rebels had pulled up up the street and they started firing on the gates and on our property. And there was a, there was an all out war. And, uh, so Waldy went over to the, the general at the time and said, Hey, listen, just let me know when it's time to leave and where should I hide? And general says, no, 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 it's safe. It's fine. Just let me know. Are you ready to go? Waldy says, uh, yep. So the general, I kid you not, grabs a bullhorn, yells out over the wall. Hey, the foreigners want to leave cease fire. And then everything stops. So he says it was the most surreal experience. So the gates creep open and they get into the land cruiser and slowly pull out of the gates and they're waving by to all of the military guys standing there with their AK-47s pointed up the street. So they drive up the street 200 meters, 300 meters, and then suddenly they see the rebels on the corners, you know, in their little positions, waving at them, pushing them, you know, waving them. Goodbye. Yeah, it's fine. Go ahead. Smiling. Welcome here. Welcome here. Sorry about this. Sorry. You know, they're embarrassed and they're, you know, trying to communicate that they're safe. So they're waving them by. And so these, my staff, they drive up the hill another maybe 500, 600 meters. And then suddenly the fighting starts again (laughs) and just like machine guns and, and mortars and stuff. Anyway, so it was, it was hilarious, but that's a really good example of exactly how it was. Uh, we were very well protected and very well welcomed by uh, both sides of the war. So we stayed for a year. It totally sounds like that uh, that story of uh, World War One on Christmas Day when both sides all of a sudden had a ceasefire and decided to start playing football. Yeah, and exactly. Exactly. I've seen that in a movie. I can't remember which film it was, but it, it's kind of like that. It's a bit surreal. So we did. We lived in the in the uh, the war for a year. Uh, it was really. It was. A little chaotic. We had to explain line of fire to our seven-year-old. Uh, she didn't really understand what was going on at the time. So she came outside, actually. My wife uh, and I were sitting outside drinking coffee and watching a sniper fight between, <laughs> between a position on the mountain and a position in the castle in Taiz. So our daughter comes out and says, Mom, are we in danger? And she says, no, no, honey, we're not in the line of fire. So we grab a piece of paper and a so pencil. Drawing it up. Yeah, we draw these three little positions on the on the paper, one position is for the rebel fighter and one position for the government fighter and one position is for us. And then we draw a straight line between the government fighter and the rebel fighter and say, oh, they're shooting at each other. And so we're over here, so we're not in the line of fire. And then our daughter's like, oh, okay, great. So she leaves because she feels safe again. And then my wife and I kind of turn to each other and we're like, are we bad parents? Like, this is this is not right. We should not be having to explain this to a seven-year-old. I'm sure that this is, I, this is not an original story. I mean, there's thousands of parents in, in Aleppo and Damascus and Sana'a that have had to explain line of fire to their children over the last few years. But, you know, as a, as a Canadian, you don't expect that kind of experience in the 21st century. So exactly. that was a bit novel. Yeah. Well, okay, so <laughs> from there... You, you left the war, or you left Yemen? Yes, yeah. And that's how you came to Dubai? Yeah, Al-Qaeda had moved into the city and assassinated one of my American uh, employees at the ITDC. And um, so then once they had come into the city, they're invisible, and I glow in the dark. It just didn't make sense to, to stay when they were hunting Westerners there. Yeah. And, and your family's there as well? Yeah, yeah, of yeah. course. I have my family as well. I don't, well, yeah, probably they could have been targets. But uh, yeah, it was it was my understanding that they were they were hunting for me. So, 
So then yeah, me and, Dubai. and Waldi and all of the rest of our team there. Yeah. So we came to Dubai, uh, partnered up with a really great uh, Yemeni friend of mine, Walid Zafar, who is the, the head of um, Uniglocal Intertrade. And that's, uh, that's when we developed Chicky Chunk. Okay. So, so we'll, we'll get into Chicky Chunk. Yeah, sure. Hey, just as a background, what do you do now? How do you describe what it is you do for companies? Okay, so the two things that I do now, I think probably better than anyone else in the region that I've met with, is, uh, is employee engagement uh, and disruptive technologies, adaptivity to disruptive technologies. So one of them is called Future of Work. I've been working also with Zishe on this project because there's so many CEOs out there that don't have the vocabulary and the competencies to deal with things like blockchain and AI and, and Industry 4.0. And they're stressed because they, they think that it's possible that their business could be disrupted and that all the pillars of their USP could be kicked out from under them at any moment. And they, they don't know how real that fear is. They don't know how, how justified that fear is. So I help to demystify disruptive technologies that are coming in and help the companies themselves to produce a strategy for the future of work in their particular sector and in their particular industry and in their particular market. And this is under the brand Paragon Consulting? This is a, a partnership program that I run with Zishe. Okay. Yeah, under Paragon, I, the work that I'm most proud of is, uh, is business as personal. It's a leadership training program and it's a, it's a strategy-based training that I do for uh, top-line managers in companies that really want to engage with their employees and really want to take care of them. I think more mature managers are realizing that oxytocin is the most profitable currency in business, much more than anything else. If you can produce oxytocin among the people that are working there, then they will make higher quality of decisions when nobody's looking, and that's where your margin is. Because you can't manage people all the time. You can't even manage people most of the time, right? So people generally 95% of the time will be doing things without supervision. And that means that they're doing things that they themselves want to do or are motivated to do. And if they're motivated by carrots and sticks, they'll do the work of donkeys. So uh, instead of that, what I do is I treat humans like humans and help people to engage with the fact that 50% of their waking life is spent in that economic community. And for two major purposes. One is to, of course, forward the, uh, the agenda of the economic community that they're participating in, and also to forward their own agenda as people. Uh, your best, fastest, most effective way to reach your personal goals is to be in the job that you're actually in right now, because you're smart enough to know that if there was a better, faster, more effective way, you would be doing that. <laughs> Nicely put. <laughs> and just to clarify, by oxytocin, yeah. we mean about their happiness and self-motivation, yeah. right? Yeah. The chemical formula for happiness is dopamine, serotonin, and oxytocin. Okay? So that's basically what it is in the brain. I mean, there's, there's a few other chemicals that go along with it. Those are the big ones. Uh, dopamine is the achievement drug. It's the one you get when you take something off of your task list, uh, when you hand in the report, when you make your, your goals at the end of the year, when you, you hit your sales target, that rush that you get, that's, that's dopamine. Uh, also, when you work out, you can get dopamine. You can get dopamine from a lot of different negative sources too, like gambling and alcohol. And there's a lot of addictions that lead to dopamine. Yeah. If you want dopamine on the street, it's available. It's called heroin. It's not available in the UAE, mind you, but it, it's out there. And so that's why it's so addictive is it's, it's the chemical that's produced in the human brain for the consumption of the human brain in order to keep us achievement-oriented. 
that helps us to survive better on the planet and it helps us to, to um, uh, reproduce better is because we have this achievement-oriented drug. Uh, serotonin is, a, is kind of like an honor drug. I, I call it the honor drug here in the, in the Middle East. It's the one you get when other people appreciate you, when they say good job, you're doing a great job, when you feel um, that you've accomplished something that's, that's socially beneficial, you get serotonin. And oxytocin is the trust drug. Oxytocin is the one that helps you determine who it is you can trust on the planet to provide for and protect for your protect your family while you're providing for and protecting theirs. Nice little science lesson. That's the chemical formula for happiness: is is dopamine, oxytocin, and serotonin inside a human brain. And you focus <laughs> on o- oxytocin as well. I do. Yeah, oxytocin um, by far is the most powerful. I, the research is showing us by far the most powerful indicator of uh, productivity, performance, and loyalty. So if you want the best out of your people, uh, the better, better than any carrot, better than any stick, actually, is trust. If you, can, if you can get your people to trust you and to trust that they're safe in the organization that they're participating in and trust that the organization is going to take care of them if times get tough, then absolutely, yes, you're going to get the best out of them. Not the, not the best um, performance out of them, the best of their character out of them. And that's a much higher order value than just the best you know, linear output, hit the KPIs and you're safe kind of thing. Nobody needs that. Let's strive for the best within you. Yeah, exactly. People want to be the best that they can be. And they want to feel that even though this isn't their final career step, that whatever step they're in now is contributing to their final career step. So actually, it doesn't matter if people are in their jobs for two years or 10 years or 20 years. Statistically speaking, millennials are in their jobs for two to two and a half years. I'm Gen X, so I'm in my job for maybe five years, statistically speaking. Um, but the idea that people are going to be lifers 30 years in the same company. Gone are the boomers. Oh, yeah, it's gone. That's gone. So let's just embrace the reality, the statistical reality, that the majority of your people are only going to last five years or less. What do we do with that? Let's just drag that onto the table, put it into the light, and say, how do we leverage the reality that most of our people are going to be gone within five years. Well, we become a welcoming community. We build trust quickly. We maintain, we maintain trust throughout their time with us. And then when they leave, they leave as ambassadors. We celebrate them. And when they move on to a different, higher, better paying position, we, we, we cheer for them. And then when they leave, they go as brand ambassadors. They go as company ambassadors. They go, they go telling the story for the next 30 years that the company that they worked in when they worked with us was the, their best employment experience ever. Let's talk about what you said earlier as your tagline, business is personal. Because yeah. I know you also have a talk show podcast around I that do, as well. I do, yeah, yeah. But what does that even mean? What, what does business is personal refer to? Well, for me, I'm, what I want to do is I want to tear away the idea that it's not, it's not personal, it's just business. So you've heard that phrase before, right? People say, oh, I'm sorry, you didn't get the contract. Nothing personal. It's just business. That's a lie, actually. It's a lie. It's a lie we've been telling each other to make ourselves feel better (laughs) about the negative human consequences of these decisions for a long time. But here's the thing. All business is personal all the time. Every decision every business makes or every person makes on on behalf of every business has a personal impact to the members of that business and to the members of the business that didn't win the same contract, right? So we, as humans, we've been evolving for 70,000 years. Uh, and for the majority of that time, in order to compete for resources on the planets, we would throw spears at each other's heads. Right? It was a very uncivilized way of competing for land and food and, uh, and power. So when we competed for resources, we did it by killing each other. And that was very uncivilized. So for the last 300 years or so, we've been in a transition 
from a military form of competition to an economic form of competition. And that's reflected very well in the Fortune 500. It's very, reflected very well in the top 10 economies of the world, five of which are now companies and not governments, right? So we're, we're now in an era where we compete economically. Uh, we don't compete militarily anymore. That is a dying, form, a, a dying form of human competition. We're just more civilized than that. But we still need to compete. So we need an arbiter. We need a, a referee, let's say, to determine who it is that's winning at any any particular point in the in the game, and that's the market or the customer. So I'm I'm an arbiter in a number of different games. You're an arbiter in a bunch of different games, and then we have uh, customers that we're bidding to and projecting to and trying to sell to that will decide between us and our competitors in the games that we play as as corporate entities. So that's how we compete now. Instead of throwing spears at each other's heads, uh, we we compete for market attention. And for the money, <laughs> yeah, for the money. The money is uh, the money is just a tool. Actually, we don't. I mean, there's a lot of capital out there. The majority of it is un, unrealized capital. It's just numbers. It's it's zeros and and ones sitting on spreadsheets. Uh, it's not actually a thing. Uh, it's just a it's a it's a placeholder for value. All right. So let's talk about some of these examples of what you're doing with some of these companies. Yeah, sure. Maybe we'll start with Al-Masood, the Al-Masood training yeah, sure, engagement sure. you just recently did. Yeah, yeah. I'm still, I'm still with them. I'm uh, doing a future of work project with them in the next few weeks. So they're looking at the future of automotive distribution, and they asked me to help to uh, guide the strategy discussion where they should go in the next you know, five, ten years. Uh, but before that, we did a good deal of work on business as personal. So I started, of course, with the executive committee and board members, and we walked through uh, the creation of their new vision, mission, and values statements. And those, those words are intensely meaningful if you want them to be. You know what I mean? So we can, we can make business as personal as we want, and the more personal we make it, the better, the better performance, productivity, and, and loyalty we get out of the people that partner with us, our, our teammates, our employees. Um, so what we did was we created a set of meaningful words, we discussed it over a period of days, and then we cascaded those meaningful words uh, down through the top three tiers of management in the organization, the, first, the top 100 uh, people that are responsible for highest levels of risk and responsibility in the company. So we cascaded that down and in the process helped each one of those hundred leaders to produce the vision, mission, and values and goals for their own personal lives. What it is, is it's, a, it's an overt acknowledgement that the organizational vision, mission, and values is actually a conglomerate of half of the lives of everyone that's participating in that economic project. Okay, so for as, again, for as long as you're with this particular company, half of your waking life is in that company. That's not a small part of you. It's not other than you, but it's not all of you either. So you have a personal vision, a personal mission, a personal set of values, and a personal set of goals that you're trying to accomplish. And you believe that the best, fastest, most effective way for you to accomplish those goals is to be a part of this economic community at this time. Because if there was a better, faster way to do it, you'd be doing that. Right? You're smart. So you don't have a different opportunity in front of you. You have this one, and that's why you're there, is because this one, this partnership with this group of people, each of whom is dedicating half of their human experience every day to this economic project, this way to compete on the planet, that, that gives us meaning. And it, it helps us to recognize the meaning of life in other people. So I recognize, for example, the, the meaning that you put into this company by your expenditure of time, 
time is the only fair resource. It's the only thing that myself, Warren Buffett, Bill Gates all have in common. 24 it's hours a day. as well. Yeah. We don't know how many minutes we get in our lifetime, but we do know that the minutes that we spend don't ever come back, right? So when you spend half of the minutes of your human existence for a period of five or 10 years in a particular economic project in order to provide for and protect your family, that is worthy of respect. It's worthy of honor and it's worthy of acknowledgement. And chances are the reason that you're there, maybe you have a career goal and this is a part of that process, but the majority of the reasons why you're there don't have anything to do with the economic project itself. So it doesn't matter if you're an accountant or if you're a salesman or if you're a janitor. If you're participating in that economic project with all of those other people in order to avoid having to throw spears at each other's heads, in order to compete for resources on the planet, your family is being provided for, protected, your kids are being educated, your parents are being fed and cared for, all at the same time. All employees are all achieving their same goals all at the same time by combining their specific talents on an economic project in order to compete for resources peacefully and civilly on a planet. Wow. And the Almasud family themselves or the group is one of the oldest companies or... Yeah, they're UAE trade license number one, from what I understand. (laughs) They are the oldest company there is in Abu Dhabi. Uh, And they're also just, just... a shout out to them. They're such an amazing family company, uh, third generation um, family leadership. Uh, they've professionalized over the last couple of years and they're just so forward thinking and so they're forward thinking and yet traditionally minded at the same time. They're exactly what I would look for in a mature uh, family company in the UAE in terms of their their leadership, their delegation and empowerment of leadership to people that are incredibly professional, very dedicated, very warm, very empathetic, um, very encouraging and very empowering. They are really, really, they're that good. Uh, they deserve to be a case study, actually. We'll move on to another product I, I've heard you're involved with or you helped birth or bring to life, uh, the Chiki Chunk. Oh, Chiki Chunk. Yeah, that was a wonderful project, actually. I was working with Walid Dafar of Uniglocal Intertrade on that. And so we, we were at, oh, goodness, how many years ago was that? It was a lot, maybe seven years ago. We were at uh, CL in Paris, the um, second largest food trade exhibition in the world uh, outside of Gulf Food here. So Seattle in Paris, and it was like seven years ago, and we were wandering up the aisles looking for a good idea for FMCG. And we noticed like this, we noticed a brand from, uh, from the U.S. called Kirkland, and they had like chicken pieces in a can. And I thought, oh, wouldn't it be nice if we had like flavored chicken? And we could do like shawarma and mayonnaise and black pepper. And uh, Woody's like, that's awesome. We should totally do that. So in the meeting, we, in the, the exhibition, we wandered around, found a manufacturer. They were, they were moving into value-added chicken already. Um, and so we decided that we were going to go over there and look at their facility and see if they could actually manufacture this product. So we worked for a, a year on recipes with them. It was really it was such a fun project, and it did very well. Uh, the the uh, canned chicken market in the U.S. is more than $500 million a year. And I, it's from what I understand, Kirkland brand plain canned chicken and water is the number one selling SKU at Costco worldwide. Well, Kirkland is Costco. Though. Yeah, 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 exactly, so. exactly. Kirkland is, uh, is manufactured in Georgia, but it's, uh, it's a beautiful elegant solution for uh for fmcg and we were, we added some flavors to it and characterized the the product and then launched it out here in the region 
So it was really, it was really a lot of fun. But um, if you want to read about that, I actually I produced a paper with Dr. Baron Nag on the uh, new product development process that went into Chicky Chunk. Maybe and we can have that in the show notes if you can share yeah, yeah, it with that's, us. The that's, link a, that's a journal article I published a few years ago. Speaking of food, now we'll go on to another food project. I've heard you were involved with the Emirates Macaroni Factory. Oh, where do you come up with this? This is great. Uh, that was a few years ago. Emirates Macaroni Factory is the oldest manufacturing facility in the UAE. Uh, and when they wanted a new strategy and uh, restructuring, they called, they called me. So it was such an honor uh, to work with them to produce a new, again, new, new meaningful words, vision, mission, values, strategic goals. And then one of the, uh, one of the greatest, uh, most humble leaders, uh, Ahmed Biryoha, he's such an honorable man, um, was there when, when we moved through the professionalization of management. And uh, it was a very challenging thing because they'd never had a general manager, actually. It was, it was always his father before that and then him after that. And he wanted to, to do bigger and better things, uh, but he didn't want to leave the macaroni factory to be uh, just you know, run by his staff. So I said, why don't we bring in a GM? We'll train him. We'll put him in the right place. And then, then you, you can take a step back from this and you can operate other projects. He's like, oh, that's an amazing idea. So we moved, to, we moved that, that family company toward professionalization of management, which is a difficult step in any family company. Uh, but he was such a gracious and, and humble leader and still is one of, one of the best uh, Emirati characters I've ever met. He's such a strong character. So you help them transition from what we know as the traditional family-run businesses yes, here to yes. a more professionalized That's right. yeah. structure. Yeah, so family businesses, I mean, the majority of them die in the second generation, right? And there's really good reasons for that. Uh, Second-generation leaders typically, I mean, for the biggest deficit they have is experience. They come into uh, a family company with a tremendous amount of pressure to lead that company at the same degree of, of work and effort and experience as, as, the their, founder. as the founder had, right? And the founder typically has that same expectation if they're still alive during that transition. But typically they don't have that. They don't have the same experience. I mean, they grew up in the halls of the, of the company, but the company was what dad was doing when dad was not with the family. So there may even be a bit of resentment on behalf of some, some sons of founders toward the companies that they're, they're going to lead. And then, of course, there's the expectation that they're going to lead that company whether they like it or not. And some of them don't. I've met a lot of amazing second-generation family leaders who are wealthy beyond their wildest imaginations but are in absolutely the wrong jobs and they know it. They just don't like their work but they feel trapped by the expectations of their families in order, in order to... And, and what it does is it robs that company. It robs all of the members of that economic community of the opportunity to do better. And unfortunately, these second generation, sometimes third generation family members, they, don't, they, they know it and they don't know a way out of it. So they do their best to delegate to professional managers within the company. But if the company doesn't professionalize, if it doesn't actually go through the transition of weaving family into the company but without making the family run the company, uh, then a good deal of, of those companies die. The majority of them die in the second generation. And then I think maybe 4 to 6% survive to the third generation, and that's it. And there's, there's a really good reasons for that. That's an interesting thing you just said about how there might be some resentment towards... That's the other half of their life, the parent, the father's life. Yeah, I've heard that story a few times 
where you know the, the founding father of a of a family company, all their whole drive is to just they work, 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 build up the company so that their family never has to work again, and so that their children have jobs. That is a noble and honorable pursuit. It is. The kids who grow up in that environment very often don't recognize the nobility and honorability of that. What they see is dad wasn't with us on family vacations because he was working. Dad was with us at the beach, but he had his laptop open because he was working. Uh, Dad was at home, but he wasn't accessible to me. He didn't play with me because he was working. Because founders work really hard. I mean, you work with a lot of entrepreneurs, right? And you know to start a company is like having a new baby. For the first two years, it's just it's vomit and dirty diapers and screaming, and there's no sleep, and no one says thank you, and you're always trying to save it from dying. Like it's It's hard work. So if you get a company to work for a couple of years, and then you raise it like a child, you kind of want to protect it. And so a good deal of those founders grew up protecting and building their companies, uh, sometimes at the emotional expense of their own families. And so the families I've found, um, it's not, it's not equally, um, like on one side or the other. I've just found a few stories where, uh, where sons are particularly thankful and grateful for the sacrifice of their fathers, but also resentful of the company for demanding so much of them. And I think that's one of the, one of the founders, um, uh, the dilemma it's a founder's dilemma is you know how do you professionalize uh, soon enough that you can go back and spend time with the family that you're trying to provide for and protect by building the company that you're building and there's that expectation right you, mm. you're the founder's son yeah yeah of course I've met a number of founders who are founders sons who aren't really passionate about the jobs that they're that their dads have built for them but they feel they feel trapped and so maybe they're not passionate, maybe they're not educated, definitely they're not experienced enough to do it, uh, but then they have to take on this incredible, you know, leviathan of a, of a company without the passion, without the education, without the experience. And they feel out of depth, but they have to put on a brave face. They very often fake their way through it. And it's unfortunate that they feel that they have to do that. I've met some sons as well that are brave enough to say, no, actually what I want is to hire somebody from Europe to manage this thing for me. I'll make the major investment and divestiture decisions, but all the day-to-day work, I really want someone else to do that. And that, that, is, that is also brave and noble and honorable because that is a better source of protection and provision for all of those employees than you know, trusting yourself with your lack of passion to, to lead that great that that great economic community. Yeah, it's like bringing a chief operating officer to actually handle the day to day. Yeah, of course, of course. I mean, one of the most one of the wisest things that Sheikh Zayed did when he was founding the UAE was to bring in external consultants, and you know, to basically to ask them, "Hey, listen, if if you had an unlimited amount of money and this is the land that God gave you, what would you build?" And they were like, "Yeah, let's build a port. Let's become the airport of the world. Let's become the hub of the planet. Yeah, let's, they you know, the capital city of the planet." And so he was very inspired by that. And of course, he empowered people uh, that had the expertise, that had the knowledge that he didn't have. What he had was the power, and so he used that power to empower, which is how it should be done. And that was it was such a wise and uh, elegant form of leadership. I think this is a good transition point because what we were just talking about, how the founding father of that company Mm. would spend time at work. And then nowadays we talk about work-life balance. But I know (laughs) that you actually don't like that term. And you actually refer to a term called 
work-life blend. Yes. So yeah. what does that mean? Okay, so work-life balance, the word balance evokes the image of scales, that you are trying to balance your work and your life. And that is, that is uh, an unfortunate myth that comes out of bad consulting and bad management practice from the 1980s. And it's kind of, it's, we're still in the hangover of that horrible management practice. Uh, but the reality is that your work is not other than your life. It's, to be fair and to be accurate, it's half of your life, not other than, right? So you're not trying to balance your work and your life. You're trying to balance the amount of attention you're spending on your work as a part of your life, perhaps. Uh, The other misnomer or myth that it perpetuates, that work-life balance idea, is that you are somehow at work and not uh, a member of your family or part of your social community. Yeah. And we know that's not true. Facebook has made that not true. Email has made that not true. So all of us who are dedicated to our jobs and dedicated to our families, we check our Facebooks at work. We do. Let's just, let's just be honest. Let's be real about that. Every HR department everywhere knows that. Okay. The other thing is that if we're, if we're dedicated to our jobs and our jobs are uh, a large part of who we are as people, we check our emails at midnight just before we go to bed. We do. Because that's also who we are. We're the kinds of people that check our Facebook at 10 in the morning when we're between reports. And we're the kinds of people that check our email at 11 at night uh, just before we go to bed to make sure there's nothing urgent, no urgent fires that need to be put out. That's the reality. The reality is is there's no work-life balance. There's work-life blend. And there's attention mastery. So you can master your attention so that you're spending your attention or investing your attention in a certain role of yours at a certain time. That's wise. That's great leadership. Uh, but the idea that you are, you know, now you're an employee, then you punch out, now you're a father, then you punch out, now you're a friend hanging out with your other friends watching football, then you punch out. And then that, like that, that whole idea, the, the thumbprint idea of life and time, it's very outdated. It's very outdated. And it, it really is disrespectful to the amount of um, passion and effort that people do put into their jobs. It is, it is their life. It's not all of their life but it's not other than their life either. It's a, it's a blend. I haven't heard of that term before. I hadn't heard of a work-life blend either, before. Actually. Is it something you... I don't know. I, I'm not going to trademark it. Uh, I don't know if I, if I invented it or not. I, I don't remember reading it anywhere. So I think I just got frustrated with somebody saying balance all the time. And I was like, no, no, it's not balance. It's blend. And I just like pushed my fingers together. And I was like, there's no balance here. Everything is all mixed up all at the same time. It doesn't matter what time of day you talk to me and who it is that's in front of me. I'm no less a father to my children right now because I'm with you than I am when I'm not with you. Exactly. You're not balancing right now. I'm not a father right now. That's right. That's right. And guaranteed, you know, if you're at work, if, you're, if you have a good job and something happens and you're at work and you're, one of your children needs help, they're, God forbid they're in the hospital, you look around at your economic community and say, hey, one of my children's in the hospital and your economic community is going to say, we've got you. We've got your back. Don't worry. We'll provide for you. We'll protect you. Take this. Go deal with your family. Same thing as if you're with your family on holidays and you have a, a, a position of high responsibility or risk in an organization. If you're sitting on the beach on a Friday uh, in Mauritius with your family, suddenly the phone rings and there's a, there's a major economic catastrophe and they need some decisions from you. You turn to your family and you say, hey, listen, I really need to put this fire out. Give me an hour. They're going to give you an hour. That's the way the, work, that's the, way the world actually works. When there's good blend, then we know that our roles never, ever stop. I'm 100% father, son, uh, brother, 
employee, employer, student, teacher, all at the same time. All of my roles are always valid. It's just a matter of where I'm putting my attention. Speaking of good blends, are there any personal routines or habits you tend to do to make up your blend? Yeah, of course. Uh, I think I'm I may be one of the most disciplined people I know. Okay. Um, I get up uh, usually at five or six every morning. Uh, I'm in the gym. First thing, I spend an hour at the gym every day. Uh, I read every day. I write every day. Um, so those are, those are things that I absolutely have to do. Those are my, my daily routines. Is there a certain time you do the reading or the writing? No, there's not a time on the clock that I do the reading, but there's a certain amount of time that I read. Oh, so there's you always make sure you try yes, and get yes, that same of amount of... Oh. Yes, yes. Yeah, because it's a part of my long-term, my long-term goals. Uh, I'm writing a book. I'm writing two books at the moment. But Concurrently? Yes, oh. because I couldn't decide which one to write. So <laughs> Why not two books? <laughs> yeah, right? Well, this gives me the choice. You know, if, I, if I decide I wake up one day and I'm feeling motivated on one, I'll start writing that one. And if I'm feeling motivated on the other, I'll just start writing that one. Are they similar topics? No, not at all. No, <laughs> no not at all. They're totally disparate topics. Uh, but that's a, that's great. That gives me the mental playground to move b- between one and the other. And I, then I just don't get bored as easy. But I have to write. Like I, I really I enjoy the process of writing, uh, and that's one of my daily disciplines. Of course, uh, interacting with my um, my kids, my friends, my clients. These are all the standard disciplines too. Is there anyone you would consider a role model or an inspiration? Yeah, of course. Like many, actually. Uh, I love Peter Drucker. I love uh, the the really classical. No, well, they're going to hate me calling them classical. But John Maxwell, Max Dupree, Peter Drucker, um, Kaplan and Norton, uh, Kuz and Posner. These the great leadership theorists of the '80s and '90s who helped us to recognize the the death of bad consultancy before it actually started to happen. And I think Robert Greenleaf, um, his idea of servant leadership has been the most influential in in my view of leadership. So I'm really grateful to those guys. Currently, I'm grateful to Simon Sinek, uh, Rosalind Torres, uh, Mike Steyer, uh, all of the works of Steven Pinker. I've read everything he's ever written. I absolutely love that guy. Have you read Better Angels of Our Nature? You have to read no, it. No, I'm amazing. a fan of Freakonomics and all that. Okay, okay, good. Yeah, Gladwell is a brilliant thinker as well. Um, uh, Yuval Harari... If you've not read yeah, any of Yeah, Sapiens and Homo yeah, Deus. Of yeah, of course, of course. So those guys are very influential for me. Oh, this is a great transition point because I was about to ask you, what is a book you tend to gift most often? Now there's probably a few, but let's yeah, say the, the top three. The first one is Servant Leadership by Robert Greenleaf. I think every leader should read that book. Goodness, there's too many. Homo Deus now. Uh, by Yuval Harari and Life 3.0 by Max Tegmark. What's Life 3.0? Life 3.0 is a really great idiot's guide to the end of the world where artificial intelligence is concerned. So it is uh, it demystifies for, for um, non-specialist readers what is actually happening in terms of artificial intelligence, what artificial intelligence is, uh, what the potential impact on on humanity it could be, and what potential timelines there are for those those pieces of impact, and it demystifies those things in a way that makes it really easy to read. It's not very technical. It's not code based. Uh, he's very the opening chapter alone is worth the price of the book. 
He tells an amazing story of a, a group of students. It's not a true story, but he tells an amazing story of a group of students from a university who accidentally create an artificial general intelligence. And then they use it for beneficial purposes. They teach the artificial general intelligence that its primary purpose is, is to improve the quality of human life. And so it creates the most amazing movie that ever that nobody's ever seen before. It does it entirely on CGI that it learns how to use by itself. Uh, it invests in the stock market, and it makes tons and tons of money and establishes universal uh, basic income so that nobody, even if people are out of jobs because robots take over and the artificial intelligence does everything, for. yeah, they're still accounted for, they're still paid. So people actually can choose what they do with their time. And more, more, more and more people become artists and painters and philosophers because they have time to do it and they have the money to do it because the, the AGI is creating enough money to pay everyone on the planet according to their needs. And, they, and it does. So it's this wonderful utopian view of uh, how artificial general intelligence could be, uh, and that's how he opens up the book. And I think it's a very hopeful. It's a bit. It's utopic, right? But it's it's a very hopeful view of humanity's use of artificial uh, artificial intelligence. So it's a nonfiction storybook. It, no, no. It, the first chapter is is fiction. Okay. The rest of it is nonfiction. It's all about the development of artificial intelligence and what it means for the planet question for you if you could post the message on Sheikh Zayed Road for people either visiting Dubai or going towards Abu Dhabi for them to see a message what yeah. message would you like business is personal not to promote yourself you're not actually just putting myself. yeah actually actually that is the that is the core of my message <laughs> business is personal I just don't want I don't want people to lose track of the fact that every decision that's ever been made by every company everywhere in the world has always been made by a person and on behalf of a person and costing another one. Every business decision is personal. Are there any hobbies you tend to do on the weekends? Yeah, I, I run Spartan races. Oh, okay. I run like all of them. Yeah, I, I, got, I got addicted a few years ago. One of my friends was like, hey, let's go run one of these 5K races. I was like, oh, I've never run 5K in my life. I hate running. He's like, no, it's not the same because you're running on sand and then you know, every 500 meters you have to climb walls. There's another stuff. obstacle as well. Yeah, exactly. So I was like, oh, okay, so that's interesting. So I, I did one and I thought, oh, man, that's, that was really cool. You know what it was, though? It was a big source of dopamine. So after every 500 meters, there's an obstacle. When you complete the obstacle, you get a hit of dopamine. So you run the next 600 meters to the next obstacle. You complete the obstacle, you get a hit of dopamine, right? Like, and then if you're running with someone, you get oxytocin along with that dopamine. And then if they pat you on the back for completing the obstacle, then you get <laughs> serotonin <laughs> along with the oxytocin and the dopamine for completing that obstacle. It's really a lot of fun. So from a, from a head chemical perspective, it is absolutely an addictive thing. So I, <laughs> I ran the 5K, then I thought, oh, I wonder if... They've got longer ones, so they do. They have longer ones, right? Like the the Spartan, they have 10k. They have, oh no, they have the the 5k, the 15k, and then the 23, the 23k beast, which they've run a couple of times in the UAE, and that's that's their 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 big one, you know. And then if, I found out that if you run the 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 sprint, which is the five, the 15, which is called the super, and the 23, the beast, all in one year, you get it's called the trifecta, and that's like another prop. Like it's just it's just a, a kudos. So you have that, that now? Yeah, I've gotten it for the last few years in a row. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I've gotten the trifecta every year. Last year, I wanted to make it a little bit more challenging for myself because I'm always looking for ways to improve um, myself, and I, so I wanted to make it a little more challenging. So I decided to do the entire trifecta in two days. So I, I went. What? <laughs> I went down to Oman. Yeah, it was maybe. I'm not, losing my breath thinking about it. It was maybe not a good idea. 
Uh, but I thought, you know, I had run the Beast before. I know how fatigued you get at the end. So they were running the trifecta all three races uh, in Oman on one weekend. So on the Friday, I ran the 23. Then on the Saturday, I got up and cursed myself for for setting this bar that I would run the, the 15 and then run the 5 in the afternoon. I thought, this is impossible. My feet were full of blisters. I had a huge gash in the back of my left ankle. It was bleeding and... The, uh, my shoe had come undone on the back. Like I had, I had totally worn out my shoe on the back. So there's a, a, a shard of plastic that was digging into the back of my ankle. And then I had to put all of my gear back on and limp my way to the starting line. Limping your way to the starting line a good sign. <laughs> is a humbling experience. There's because everybody's there and they're so psyched, right? Because they're running their first race. They came for the super. They want to run the 15, you know, and so they're like getting all excited and people are like, aru, aru, aru. they're cheering. And everybody's like looking at me like, yeah, so excited. I'm like, I am not excited at all. And in fact, if I didn't post this on social media and make myself accountable to a few people, I don't think I'd be running. I just, don't, just bowed out. <laughs> oh, I do not have the motivation for this. Motivation is a weak weak force by the way motivation lasts between five and 40 seconds in the brain that's it when you have that idea that hey maybe i should get off the couch and go do something you literally have 40 seconds to respond to it otherwise the chemicals are burned out and then you will just sit and do nothing you'll slip back into autopilot or whatever the easier way to earn dopamine is which is doing nothing expending less energy right so i'm there at the starting line no motivation at all and i'll tell you what matters discipline the ability to choose in spite of your feelings what behaviors you will exhibit, that matters. Uh, in business, in life, on the track, in the gym, in your family, uh, all great leaders have discipline, not motivation. It is the ability to do what you know needs to be done when you don't feel like it. Discipline is where money is actually made. That discipline is where success actually comes from. It's that, it's that ability to choose your behavior. When you think of those entrepreneurs who made it, it's that drive. But yeah. what's leading them that drive is that discipline to do yep. that, get up every morning. Get yeah, and to get up and go and, and pound the pavement again, to make another 100 calls, to make another 100 pitches, to, you know, to talk to another dozen VCs. Like, it's, it's grueling. You ask any uh, entrepreneur, they will tell you. They, lo they lost motivation months ago. Now it's discipline. Now it's drive, it's survival. You know? they, they're doing it because they're, they've convinced themselves that they have to do it. And for most uh, entrepreneurs, that's their real experience is discipline. Discipline is, is the core of success. So I, I, do, I, I do a good deal of executive coaching as well. And when I talk to executive or my executive clients, um, very typically when I ask them, hey, if, you know, what's your vision for your life in 10 years? If everything goes well over the next 10 years, what will your life look like? They can tell me. No problem. Yeah, most of them have an idea. Oh, I want my kids to be in this university. I want this kind of a house, this kind of a boat, this kind of a car. I want this kind of a job. I want to be living in this kind of a place. That's not an issue. But when I ask them, what are you doing tomorrow to contribute to that? They go blank. <laughs> These guys, they've been CEOs for years, right? Strategy, no problem. 10-year vision for the company, no issues at all. And say, okay, so you've got a 10-year view of your life? Yeah. Okay, so what are you doing tomorrow? Yeah, I don't know. I was thinking maybe I'd go golfing, right? Like there's just no, 
uh, alignment between our daily behaviors, our daily disciplines, and our long-term vision for our lives. Uh, in most executives, they, they have passion and they have vision. Yeah, they know where they're they, planning they, to go, but they yeah, don't know the, don't or the discipline. discipline. Yeah. yeah. And so I help them to, to build that discipline, to identify what are the actual behaviors you need to exhibit, what are the actual brain chemicals you need to hack in your own brain in order to tune your uh, seeking of dopamine from one source to another source, and then help to get you addictive to a new, addicted to a new kind of, of behavior that leads to success. That's, uh, I think, um, one of the single most effective changes you can make personally in business is to, to be able to hack your own head. Uh, to build a discipline into a habit so that you're seeking dopamine from a new source, a source that leads to success. All right, so we'll move on to a question we ask all our guests. Sure. We know Expo 2020 is coming, just yeah. around the corner. Dubai and the UAE in general is known for doing moonshot projects. Yeah, yeah, sure. If they could take on a moonshot project of your saying, oh. w- what would it be? Wow. It would be... Oh, goodness, that's a good one. A moonshot project. I love the Mars project. I love the Startup City project. I love the Ministry of Happiness. Yeah, Expo 2020 for me is not a moonshot. It's a bit of, it's marketing. It's great marketing. But the real development of Dubai is actually in Dubai South. So if you've ever seen the plans for Dubai, you'll know that Expo 2020, though it's very flashy, it's like, it's like fireworks, right? Expo 2020 is a set of fireworks. Dubai South is a forest fire. That's where the real, that's where the real impressive future investment and future focus for the city is going to be. So I really I like that. I like the idea that we have 2071 goals. Uh, that's very future focused. But I think if I was going to push uh, anything, it would be healthcare. And it would be the adaptation of uh, technology into humanity as a form of healthcare. The, the idea of um, insertable technology and genome splicing and genome manipulation. So it's personalizing healthcare or even no, thinking about uh, yeah, thinking the next the, generation? On the R&D side. Okay. On the R&D side. Right now, there's, um, there's a company that's, that has successfully, uh, I don't know if they use CRISPR or another technology, but they've edited uh, the genes of horses and the first generation of a gene-edited horse that is going to be stronger and faster than every other breed of horse on the planet is, is now in its infancy. So there's, there's ways for us to use the technologies that we have uh, in order to advance the human race, in order to make us better, faster, stronger, to live longer, to repair the ills that we have. And I think that Dubai is uniquely uh, positioned to be able to attract both the technology side uh, and the, the surgical side. Uh, in order to get those technologies together to figure out what it is, what's actually possible for us in the next 30 years. As humans, I think we're going to go through a massive transition in terms of our ability to extend the lives of our, um, to extend our own lives. So I'm doing it in a small way in terms of adding meaning to people's lives. Uh, the research shows that that makes people live longer as well. Uh, but I think technology uh, will have a much greater contribution to the to extending human life than than just meaning can. Do you know if they're actually using CRISPR anywhere here? I have no idea, actually. I, re- like, I, I don't even know, know what the laws are around that. Yeah, in the UAE, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But since we're going into space travel and since we're going into telecommunications and artificial intelligence... Uh, I'm pretty sure yeah, that's w- next. Why yeah. not go into healthcare? 
I know that we, you know, we do a lot of uh, healthcare tourism in the UAE. I just think that more and more we should, uh, we should be a research center for the future of, of healthcare. Lastly, do you have any last words of wisdom for our listeners? Uh, for listeners in general? Yeah. Or anyone <laughs> listening to you right now? <laughs> yeah. uh, do something that's meaningful or find the meaning in something you're doing. People who live meaningful lives statistically live longer lives. Not only are they happier, they live longer. So there's a medical benefit to having meaning in your life. And finding meaning in your life is, is really very simple. It is, it's knowing uh, what your skills, talents, and abilities are, making, knowing that you have a sense of purpose and a sense of significance, that what you're doing is important to you and that it matters to those around you. If you can find your way into that frame of mind, you don't actually have to change your job. You just have to change your mind. Just recognize that the people that are in the company around you, in your team, in your division, those people are dedicating half of their lives to the same economic project that you're dedicating half of your life. In that set of relationships, you can find meaning. And when you do, you'll be happier and you'll live longer. So something like Ikigai, you know, from the Japanese. Oh, uh, yeah, of course. uh, The one thing. (laughs) Yeah, it's like the hedgehog concept, yeah. right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, um, for me, helping people to find meaning in their lives, in the lives that they're already living, uh, is, it's a very, it's a humbling and wonderful project. Lastly, where can our listeners go to learn more about you and oh, all listen, the other work the, you're the doing? The spelling of my name is very unique. It's C-O-R-R-I-E. So just Google Corey, C, Dr. Corey Block, C-O-R-R-I-E, B-L-O-C-K, and you will find. Find me on Instagram, LinkedIn, uh, Twitter, Facebook. Find my, my website is paragon.ae, P-A-R-A-G-O-N.ae. Uh, there you'll find all of my, um, my links. And uh, please feel free to reach out to me. I, I reach back personally. So I'm not, uh, I'm not so big that I'm out of touch. <laughs> I don't I don't mind interacting with you. Please reach out to me if you have any questions or you just want to say hi. Well, thank you for being on the show. Yeah, my pleasure, honestly. It's really fun. You can find this episode's show notes on our website at streamsofprogress.com/paragon. That's P A R A G O N. We'd love to connect with you, so follow us on Facebook and Instagram or reach out via our website. If you can please take a few minutes to give us an honest rating on iTunes, this really makes a huge difference and improves our ability to reach more people in the UAE and beyond. We hope you enjoyed the show and look forward to seeing you next week on Streams of Progress.